welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of November 2020 and this is episode 183. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Mark Scott about his new book, Among the Kings, that gives a new story on the Unknown Warrior. Mark spoke to me over the interweb from his home in County Down, Northern Ireland. Hi Mark, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hello Tom, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm the author of a, of a, a previous book titled The Man Who Shot the Great War, and I, which explored the uh, photographs of a Royal Irish Rifle soldier called George Hackney. This book came about through research that I'd carried out for the BBC and Double Band Films on a documentary film of the same title, The Man Who Shot the Great War. Um, I can't describe my Myself as a historian, um, but I do come from an investigative background. I was a detective for 30 years in the Royal Ostrich Constabulary, and the, the approach I've taken to the Great War has, has been an investigative approach on documents that uh, were left by my great-grandfather who had served in the Great War. Can you start by giving us an overview of your research and why it is important? Yeah, the book um, that I've written based on the research is titled Among the Kings. Um, it tells the story of my personal journey into the research that I'd carried out over the past eight years or so, quite some time, um, into the information that was written um, into a little notebook that belonged to uh, my great-grandfather, Jimmy Scott. Jimmy Scott was a company sergeant major in the 14th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles. He uh, came from County Armagh and lived in Belfast at the time the Great War had started. Uh, ultimately, the, the journey led me to uncover, as I explored the, the names of, of men who had served with him that were written in the little notebook, um, I uncovered remarkably new information on the story of the recovery of the body of the unknown warrior in November 1920. And this was completely unexpected. Um, I didn't set out to write a book about the unknown warrior. Um, I was basically following um, a line of research uh, based on what my great-grandfather had written. So before we get into the detail of your book, can you tell us about what the broadly accepted narrative around the selection of the unknown warrior? <coughs> yes, the, the broadly accepted narrative um, that, that we would read today. And it's based on what was put forward by General Lewis Wyatt back in 1939. Uh, what happened then was he um, he had written a letter to the Daily Telegraph, which was published, and this followed uh, previous speculation and incorrect accounts uh, that would have surfaced generally, remember, from, from when the event occurred in 1920. Um, ver- various different accounts would appear in the press, some incorrect and some made up of previous incorrect accounts. So I think General Wyatt wanted to just put the record straight. And in November 1939, he penned this um, this letter to the Daily Telegraph. And basically, he outlined the, uh, the the details that he was aware of. He was in charge of the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry at St. Paul, where the selection of the unknown warrior took place. The, the whole concept was put forward by a chaplain, uh, the Reverend David Realton, MC. And he 
he thought of the, the, the idea early on in the war in 1916. He thought of the, this, this idea of having an unknown warrior that could be the center of mourning, if you like, uh, for, for all of those who were missing um, during the war. Uh, it was quite uh, forward thinking of him at that time. Um, after the war ended, he followed up this thought and he made a proposal which he sent through the Dean of Westminster and it eventually um, got the eye of the king. Um, following that, orders were issued to General Wyatt and he was given the responsibility of uh, formulating an operation and carrying out the recovery of a body um, that would eventually be uh, become the, the unknown warrior. The, the, the original brief that General Wyatt was issued by the Adjutant General is really quite um, short and succinct and I can, I can read it for you now. It was issued on the, the, the 22nd of October 1920 and it, it basically states, and I'll quote, unknown warrior, the following provisional instructions have been issued by the Adjutant General in connection with the internment of an unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey on Armistice Day. One, the Director General of the Graves Registration Inquiry will exercise his direction as to the location from which the body is exhumed. Two, date of the original burial should be as far back as possible. Three, under instructions to be issued later, the body will be conveyed to Calais and there placed in a full-size coffin which will be sent out from England. And finally, four, sufficient soil is to be sent with the body to cover the coffin and fill a full-sized grave. So that was the, the brief that General Wyatt had um, and as I mentioned that was issued on the 22nd of October 1920 so he had less than three weeks to put a plan together execute it and to have this body taken for burial in Westminster Abbey on Armistice Day in 1920 so he came up with a plan basically what he and, and what had been published at the time was that a number of bodies um, he mentions four but various accounts have different numbers but basically four bodies were brought to his headquarters at St Paul in France um, the, the the date of this has, has been a question and it's it's a big part of the, the information in my book. Um, but in his 1939 account, he, he states that on the night of the 7th into the 8th of November, the four bodies were brought to the chapel at St. Paul, a makeshift chapel. He was then led into the chapel and selected one body. Um, that body was then taken. It was uh, remained there overnight. The following day, it was taken to Boulogne. It remained there overnight, then was taken on HMS Verdun um, across the channel to uh, uh, another overnight stay at Victoria Station, uh, where it was held in the uh, railway carriage that was used to, to uh, bring back the body of Edith Cavell, um, a nurse who was executed by the Germans. The following day, then, it was uh, brought and interred in Westminster Abbey very publicly. So that, that was the accepted narrative, the, 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 the basic story, if you like, and that is what he put forward in 1939. Uh, since then, journalists and writers have used that account to, uh, to retell the story, usually every November um, but there are a few flaws in it. Now you talk about um, the reason that Wyatt actually wrote his letter in the Daily Telegraph in 1939 was to quash some of these myths and rumours around the selection process. What were those myths and rumours and did they continue to exist after Wyatt wrote his letter in 1939? Yes they did continue to exist. Uh, various accounts as I've mentioned had surfaced from a number of different sources even from before the body actually arrived at Westminster Abbey. Uh, as it departed Boulogne on the, um, the 10th of November, a, a report appeared in the Times um, speculating as to where the body came from. And this is a big thing, the story, and I, I suppose it's um, the public and the press's own interest was, was fired up by the whole operation. Um, so you have, you have the speculation as to where in France the body came from. You've also the number of bodies that, that were used for selection, how the selection was carried out, and 
And all of these things were, were tugged at, if you like, by the press over the years. And initially, the, um, the, the operation was carried out and the body was buried very publicly. And the whole thing was a success, a, a great success. And it created a, a point of mourning uh, for hundreds of thousands of people in Britain. But the problem, I think, that the, uh, the authorities had was a secret operation that began in utmost secrecy. But as the day passed, as the days passed and the operation moved on, it crossed from being covert, if you like, to overt and quite public. And the overt parts of the operation from basically the 9th into the 10th and the 11th of November, the, the public were very well aware of. But by curiosity and you know our, our own natural instincts, we, we want to know what happened then prior to that. And that part of the operation remained secret. Are there myths and rumours about what happened to the other three bodies that um, General Wyatt given to choose from and what actually happened to them after the uh, selection process? Yes, again, it's our own nat- natural curiosity. If we're told, and we were told, four bodies um, were brought to this chapel at Sam Hall, General Wyatt was led in and he chose one. That was then taken to, to Westminster Abbey. Um, our attention is, is is drawn by that that single body and, and where it ended up and the, in the, the grave of the unknown warrior. But in the back of my mind, certainly when I read the story in, in the early days of research, I asked myself the question, well, what happened to the other three? There have been a number of accounts um, that range from them being buried at St. Paul Cemetery, which was close to or uh, attached to the headquarters of the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry, to them being... Uh, there's one account, quite a recent account, actually, that states that they were just literally left at the side of the Albert Bapom Road um, in 1920 in the hope that they would be found again. Um, so you, you have a, a wide range and, and various permutations in between. Um, the, the cemetery theory, um, I've gone personally to the cemetery at St. Paul and there aren't three unknown bodies there. That cemetery was actually, uh, during the war, it was attached to a field hospital and most of the patients if you like, um, would have been known. You know, they they wouldn't have been unknown uh, graves, or, or you know, they wouldn't have been unknown patients leading them to being buried in unknown graves. And as far as the uh, being left at the side of the road account comes from, um, that has been taken up probably incorrectly by a number of other accounts from officers who were involved in the operation, and these then surfaced over the years. Um, but it still leads the, the the main question in the back of your mind is: Yes, the unknown warrior brought to Westminster. Abbey, excellent, you know, a, a terrific um, concept. But what happened to the other bodies? And well, it's it's a natural question to ask. Well, hopefully we will discover that in in uh, in, in, in the next few minutes. So now we're broadcasting on the 9th of November 2020. Well, obviously we're recording this uh, mid the, the COVID pandemic and having to isolate, etc. Um, now this date is important. The 9th of November is important to your story. Can you tell us what the significance? Yes, um, the 9th of November, very significant in the story. As I mentioned, if, if we read General Watts. 1939 account, he states that the selection of the body uh, took place just after midnight on the night of the 7th into the early minutes, if you like, of the 8th of November. But if we look at the timeline of events, um, I mentioned the, the, the broadly accepted narrative, but if we follow the timeline um, from that point to the, the, the body then being taken to Boulogne, the overnight stay there, and then being placed on HMS Verdun, um, we end up one day short in the story. The timeline does 
doesn't add up. So either there's a day missing in the account that we don't know about, or General Wyatt himself has been mistaken, or perhaps he was misquoted or misprinted um, in the Daily Telegraph account. Um, now, th this has been hinted at uh, quite recently um, by author Andrew Richards in his book, The Flag. And he has come up with, he, he think, realised the same things that I realised, that the, the timeline didn't, doesn't match up. And in fact, if you read accounts post-1939, the journalists and authors that try and piece together the story, they end up sort of fudging between the, the, the 7th and 8th and the 10th. You know, they, they, they realise that there, there's something missing, a day missing, and they, they sort of try and brush over it. So the, there was no definitive account. Now, what I did, I, I started to look at the, the lesser known and the lesser ranking officers involved in the operation. This was uh, started by the, 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 the names that I'd, I'd discovered in my great-grandfather's book. One of them, an officer, a major called Ernest Fitzsimon. He'd served in the 14th Royal Irish Rifles and he then went into intelligence roles at uh, brigade and staff level uh, within the 5th Army. And after the war, he then remained in France and uh, served then under General Wyatt in the DGRE, the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry. Um, I followed up his name in, in the book and tracked down his son, who's still alive, I'm pleased to say, and lives in Canada. And he provided me with numerous documents, photographs, and happened to mention that, yes, my dad planned that unknown warrior thing. And to be honest, I took it with a pinch of salt. But as I started to look into the, to the, the documents that he had shown me, um, I began to realise that he was actually involved in the operation. So I, I started to look at the lesser people involved and their roles and uncovered a number of accounts that put into question the start date, the 7th, 8th November. I then um, discovered, hidden in plain sight, if you like, in the Imperial War Museum archive, a previous account written by General Wyatt in 1935. And in that account, he quite clearly on two occasions mentions that the bodies were brought to the chapel at St. Paul on the 8th. And in the early minutes of the 9th of November, he made the selection. So that um, takes out the, the missing day, if you like. And it's a more contemporary, uh, contemporaneous record by General Wyatt himself. So I'm not sure what happened between that record, the second one that became published in the Daily Telegraph, but he quite clearly mentioned the 8th and 9th. So I can then corroborate that date with the other documentation that I've uncovered. So we can now say that on the early hours, the 9th of November, the body of the Unknown Warrior was selected and the three men, the bodies of three men who weren't selected were then buried. So what happens to the three men who were not selected? Yes, three men who were not selected. Um, again, the question that everyone asked themselves. The When I began researching the, the lesser known uh, men and officers in, involved in the operation, when I began re researching the lesser known names involved in the operation, I collaborated with uh, two film producers, Pete Roche and Jason Davidson of Squeaky Pedal Productions. So they they um, followed up a few leads that I gave them and they were able to uncover a document that was marked secret, handwritten document. It only came to light 2008 and it was a handwritten document issued to a captain at the time called Alb Fisher. Now Albert Fisher had uh, it served through the ranks and was commissioned uh, around about the middle of the war and um, eventually promoted to captain by the end of the war and he went on then to serve in the DGRE, um, not at some Paul, but at another uh, their bases at Duisson, which is near between Arras and Cambrai. Uh, the secret document was issued to him on the 6th of November 1920, and I can read from it here. It, it is um, amazing. It was issued by a major called Hild, and it's handwritten, marked secret at the top, and at the top it's headed Cagnicourt, BC. Now, I, I, when I was first, um, Pete Roche and Jason Davison um, showed me this, and they asked for my comment on it. When I looked at 
hanging court BC. I couldn't understand what that was. Um, but uh, as I read on, it became apparent. And the document basically states, and I'll quote from it, one, please arrange for a party of four French civilians equipped with shovels for exhumation work and an ambulance capable of proceeding to St. Paul and back to be at the foresaid cemetery, 15 to 15 hours, November the 8th. You will personally see that they are there and hand them over on arrival to Lieutenant Colonel N.G. Tronson, commanding number one district. Having done this, you will return to your camp standby in case you're needed. The ambulance driver should also be a Frenchman. Two, 2200 hours on the same date, you will again return to the cemetery with the French neighbour, equipped as before, plus lanterns, and reinter in the cemetery three bodies, graves having been dug in the meantime. For this work, again, you will not be needed, but will be required to stand by in your camp. And finally, three, the contents of this document will not be communicated to anyone, and you will arrange for the civilian labour yourself. I will come to see you on Sunday, which would be the 7th of November. I will come to see you on Sunday to ensure all plans satisfactory. 6th to the 11th, 20, copy to Colonel, Colonel Tronson. So it became apparent that the Cagnicourt BC actually stood for Cagnicourt British Cemetery. And it appeared to me that these were the orders to reinter the bodies of the three men who hadn't been selected as the unknown warrior. Yeah, Mark, I'm intrigued. So what happens next? Well, I continued to explore um, the contents of that document. And along with two film producers, Pete and Jason, we met with the Commonwealth War Grave Commission. Um, we met with them and we put over what we, uh, we we showed them what we had discovered and um, we put forward the proposition to them that these uh, three bodies may be buried in Cagney Court Cemetery. Um, they um, couldn't confirm or or or, or the, you know by the same token they, they couldn't negate what we had proposed um, and they basically said that the, the, they agreed these were orders that the names in the orders um, Hills and Trison and Captain Fisher all matched the chain of command which they had in their records for the, the DGRE, the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry, which were the forerunners of the Imperial War Graves Commission and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. So the chain of command seemed to be in place and it would be the correct chain if such an order were issued. Now, the, the point that they made was were the orders carried out? So I then tracked down the family of Captain Fisher, um, his granddaughter uh, in particular, um, in England and spoke to her, um, a lady called Sandra Hewitt. So I, I wanted to know the, the provenance, if you like, of this document. How did it come, come to light? And it was it was found in, in its own envelope, which was also marked secret, and it's addressed to the OC GRU 14, which is Graves Recovery Unit number 14. These were units that went basically across the battlefields and after the war and uncovered um, individual battlefield graves and concentrated them, exhumed those graves and concentrated them into cemeteries like Cagney Court um, after the, the armistice. So this work carried on 1919, 1920, and then there was a handover in 1921 to the, the War Graves Commission. So the we spoke to her, uh, Sandra Hewitt, and she informed me that her, her grandfather had passed away and his son had passed away in 2008. And it was at that point that they were basically clearing out the house that he lived in and they found this document at the back of a writing bureau. So it appears that Captain Fisher was issued these secret orders. He was instructed not to discuss them with anyone. And it appears that he kept the orders and they were they didn't see the light of day until actually after his son's death not only his death but after his son's death and I think the fact 
fact that the orders were kept is very significant. When you read through them, he was instructed to do quite an unconventional thing. Um, he was instructed to go by lantern light. You know, when you think about it, um, instructed to go by lantern light and, and bury these three bodies. Uh, this macabre clandestine meeting uh, would take place in the cemetery. And I suppose if I put myself in his place, I'd be thinking there could be something sinister going on here. Um, hello, I've been ordered by Lieutenant Colonel effectively carry this out and probably thought to himself, go keep these orders because they will keep me right should there be any repercussions. So it appears that that's what he did. Um, probably as the days went on, um, he realised that he may have been involved in the Unknown Warrior operation and that probably gave him another reason to keep them as a sense of pride. Um, but keep them he did and they basically didn't see the light of day until th- 2008. Uh, Sandra Hewitt's late husband, Professor Chris Hewitt, uh, sent them to uh, a local publication, the, the Black Country Bugle, and the letter was published there and he had hoped that someone would, would maybe take up the lead and try and find out more about it. That unfortunately happened until now. I then found that there were two other officers involved who were they were relatively junior of time, um, a lieutenant called Cecil Miller-Smith and another captain called Williams. And I discovered that over the years, both those men had made their own account of what happened after the three bodies were selected. And they, in some part, corroborate what we find in the Albert Fisher document in that the, the bodies were taken away and there was a rendezvous. So uh, I think we, we have the, the, the beginning of the story. The rendezvous was the Albert Bapalm Road. Uh, we've, we can see accounts that the Albert Bapalm Road is mentioned in the disposal of the body account, the quite horrific account that I, I hinted on earlier. Um, so that, that you can see that there's bits of truth come out of these accounts and that they've maybe been put together in the, in the wrong order. Um, so we have the, the start of the account where the three bodies are, are driven away in an ambulance by young Lieutenant Smith that time and he is to take them to a rendezvous. Uh, and then we have this Fisher document which seems to be the end of the story. There's one piece missing and that's what happened between Smith and Fisher. And, and what did happen? <laughs> what did happen? Well, we, we, we basically don't know the ins and outs of it but it appears that bodies after the selection took place, left St. Paul, driven by Smith in an ambulance, and they are then buried at Cagnicourt um, with Colonel Trouson and Captain Fisher present. And we have no record as to how that handover took place, or, or um, you know, where, where the, there, there is an account that states that the, the bodies may have been left at a pre-recognised grid reference on the Albert Palm Road, and they may then have been picked up by um, Colonel Trouson and his ambulance driven by French by the French uh, driver. Um, so that piece of the story, we, we need to just... Um, piece together because there's no record of it but the end of the story of the three bodies being buried at Cagnicourt we do have an account of and uh, the account that was held and retained and kept secret by Captain F- yep. So why was the process of selection covered in such secrecy? Well basically Tom the, the identity of the unknown warrior could not be known it still cannot be known it, that would um, basically ruin the whole concept um, so even if the location of from where the, the body was exhumed was disclosed well if, if you were a, a widow or a mother or a father back then and you knew that your son for instance was lost at Thiepval at the Somme and you then later discovered that the body of the unknown warrior was taken from Ypres well the the, the genie's out of the bottle if, if you like the, the you know you could then say well that, that body in Westminster Abbey can't be my son um, so secrecy had to be maintained in, in order that um, the, the hope of the thousands of people who actually went to Westminster Abbey um, and filed past the grave um, could be maintained that, that no one could say otherwise that the, the person in that grave could be their son uh, or husband. So for that reason secrecy was maintained to the extent that misinformation, we know that 
misinformation was actually purposely put out by the DGRE during the selection process. We have an account, for instance, of one man, um, Cedric Hardwick. Uh, he was an actor before the war and continued acting after the war, quite a famous actor. He was knighted, uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick. But in 1920, he was an officer. He was a lieutenant in the DGRE. Um, he was actually one of the officers instructed to guard the body of the selected unknown warrior overnight at Boulogne. And he also, he writes in his memoirs, which are written in 1936, um, a book titled Let's Pretend. And in that book, he writes that he was purposely instructed to send the press on wild goose chases um, whenever they inquired about the selection process of the, the unknown warrior. And he, he specifically writes that he, he sent them to all sorts of little villages and, you know, where, where nothing was happening in order to deflect their attention from what was actually happening at time during the selection process. It's probably around about the 7th of November. So we can see that misinformation that was put out. Um, and this is probably reflected in the account of General Wyatt, where he states that three bodies were, the three unselected bodies were buried at St. Paul. Um, it would be convenient for him to say that his base was at St. Paul. Um, however, there aren't three bodies there, three unknowns. Um, the other thing is Cecil Smith, he was also a lieutenant at the time. Later, um, when he was uh, Major General Sir Cecil Smith, he served in the Second World War as well. Um, he writes an account where he stated that the appearance of three crosses of three unknown graves at St. Paul on the early on the, on the early hours of the, the 9th of November, um, if they suddenly appeared overnight, that would raise the uh, the attention of the press. So we can see that at Cagnicourt, if there were three burials made, and we believe that there were because of Albert Fisher, Captain Fisher's orders, um, they probably were not marked. So it would be the case then that um, there would be a gap in the cemetery. Now, I checked the records, the burial records and the burial returns at Cagnicourt Cemetery, and we can actually see where Captain Fisher was working on the 10th of November, which if he had, in effect, worked a night shift on the 8th into the 9th, the 10th would have been his next working day. And that area, basically just in front of a section of the cemetery where there is a gap. And in that gap, you could place three bodies. Um, unfortunately, I can't say for sure if that's where the bodies were laid to rest. But I think it's important that what we can say is, based on this document, is that they weren't just discarded at the side of the road, the albert Papon Road um, in France, in the hope that they may be recovered by by later burial party parties working in the area. Um, but I like to think of them as not the unselected unknowns, um, which have been described. I like to think of them more as three men, the bodies of three men who served their country beyond the grave um, in helping to preserve the remembrance and a, a point of remembrance for the bereaved of the unknown. So how is your story being received by people um, in, in Northern Ireland and the UK as a whole? Um, people in Northern Ireland... Um, are actually amazed and they've taken it with a sense of pride. The the, the Ulster Division obviously l lost numerous men fighting uh, right across the front at the time, but in particular at Thiepval and in, in Belgium and near Messines. Uh, it was where my own great-grandfather was killed in action. He fortunately has a grave, but the, there's the, the Thiefal Memorial to the missing holds the names of, holds the names of some 72,000 names and again the men in gate, um, over 50,000 names of of men who were denied a grave and th these these locations have become pilgrimages, points of pilgrimage for, in, in particular for people from Northern Ireland. So um, the people I've been speaking to about this, they have received it with a sense of pride, the fact that we have, there are three, in effect, Ulster men involved in this operation. Um, Williams, Smith and Fitzsimon. Uh, Fitzsimon who served with the, the Royal Irish Rifles, 14th Battalion, 
Battalion and the, the other two men serve with Enniskill and Fusiliers and with the Royal Engineers. So that there is a big Irish involvement in, in the uncovering of this story, if you like, and Northern Ireland people will obviously pick up on that. Wider afield, uh, General Sir Roger Wheeler wrote the foreword for the book. He was quite taken aback by the, the depth of research and also the fact that this aspect of the Unknown Warrior, we, we can now hopefully draw a line under what happened to the, the other three bodies. The, it's quite a big part of our national heritage, the, 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 the concept and degree of the Unknown Warrior. And I think it's a good thing and it, it has been received as, as being a good thing that the, the question over the three unselected bodies has been addressed. One thing that I'm always asked, practically everyone that I speak to about this, asks me, you're not going to uncover the identity of the Unknown Warrior, are you? And of course I'm not. Um, and even if I had uncovered information that would indicate maybe where, where he was selected from, which I didn't, but even if I had, there's no way I would publish that. It would be kept um, kept as secret as Captain Fisher's orders. Well, I would hope they would be more secret, but <laughs> that isn't a sign. <laughs> and finally, finally, Mark, where can people um, read more about your story and hopefully get your book? Um, the book is published by Colourpoint Blackstar Press, uh, which are based in Newton Arts here in, in Northern Ireland. And it should be available, as they say, in most good bookshops and online. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>